When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The FT Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at the summit of the BRICS. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. They started life simply as a clever marketing gimmick dreamt up by Goldman Sachs to promote the idea of the emerging markets. But the whole notion of the BRICS has taken on a life of its own and they're now a formal organisation and this is their fifth summit. But what are they actually doing? Joining me on the line from the summit in South Africa is Andrew England, our correspondent there, and in the studio, Stefan Wagstall, who's editor of our Beyond Bricks website. Andrew, uh, the summit, I gather, has just ended. So has anything emerged? Yes, there has. It's been mixed results. But they've agreed uh, on the formation of a development bank, and they're calling it a BRICS-led development bank. And there's quite a lot of speculation they would have come up with some detail because the bank was first muted at last year's summit in Delhi. But at the end of the meeting, they've said, look, we've agreed on the bank. So they do agree to the establishment of the bank. But the actual technical details in terms of the capital of the bank or the seed capital of the bank and the shareholdings, etc., now will be worked out between finance ministers at a later date. They've also agreed on the proposal of a foreign reserve pool of $100 billion. But again, that, it's not clear how that's going to work or what the contributions of the various countries would be or how it would be held or how it would be accessed. So I think you've seen movement forward in terms of, yes, we do want to do things. And like you said in the beginning, a more formalized BRICS grouping with institutions. But how that's going to work in detail and practice, we still don't know. And um, why do they feel they need a, a development bank? What's the big idea? I think there's two things, really. I think on the one hand, there is a sense that the BRICS group can be more formalized. There should be greater cooperation. I and mean, that was certainly a theme that came out of this meeting. And I also think it reflects a general disgruntlement among emerging nations with the Bretton Woods institutions, particularly the IMF and, and, and the World Bank, in the sense that they don't reflect the new world order. And if you remember the, when uh, Robert Zerilek stepped down as the World Bank president, you know, there was a push for an African or an emerging market candidate to take over, and of course that didn't happen. So I think you know, there's a feeling that they're big enough and they reflect a, a new global order. They can have their own development bank, particularly to finance infrastructure, in developing nations, and uh, also to say, look, you know, we, we can do this ourselves, and the World Bank and the IMF perhaps don't reflect the current global order. Stefan, so uh, how seriously should we take all this? I mean, do the BRICS even make sense as a coherent grouping? They're obviously doing their best. I think as much divides them as unites them. Even in economic terms, there are huge disparities. The Chinese economy is roughly 20 times the size of South Africa's. Perhaps more important than that, they often stand on different sides of trade relationships. South Africa, Russia and Brazil are major exporters of resources. India and China are major importers of resources it's not always clear that they see eye to eye. That said, they do have a political purpose, I think, rather than an economic one, which is that they do feel collectively disgruntled, as Andrew said, that they're underrepresented at the Bretton Woods institutions. And this bank is, as much as anything, a step to try and do something about that. The problem, to my mind, is, of course, the devil's in the detail. Where you locate the bank is absolutely critical, as the founders of other multilateral institutions have, have discovered. 
and who contributes what is just as important. And until these things are addressed and dealt with, I can't see that, that there's going to be much progress. And if I could just say a word about China on this point, what exactly will the Chinese get out of it that they can't do already through the Chinese Development Bank and indeed the other state-controlled banks that China has? I can't see that Beijing is going to be convinced that it needs these allies in this way. And, I mean, who amongst the BRICs do you think is particularly enthusiastic or driving it forward? Do the Chinese feel that this is a, an alternative sort of non-Western forum that they can make use of? Or, or is it Russia sort of, if you like, looking for, for new groupings now that the old uh, Soviet bloc has collapsed? Has everybody got the same amount of stake in the game? I don't think so. South Africa seemed very keen in the run-up to the summit, but that's partly because, quite naturally, they wanted a big summit success and this would have been it. There's also a South African sense that Africa is the continent that most needs the money. And I don't think that the Chinese would disagree with that. But as I say, I think that the Chinese would be much more interested in using their own institutions, which are large enough already. Russia seems slightly anomalous because it's not, in a conventional sense, a rising power. I mean, arguably, it's a declining power. So does it really fit with the others? I think Russia is looking for allies where it can. As we all know, it's going through a phase of disenchantment with the US and Europe, despite the very strong economic links that exist between Russia and the European Union in particular. They don't feel a part of the West. They look elsewhere and they end up with some rather unlikely bedfellows. Andrew, what about South Africa? I mean, of course, it's a huge feather in their cap to be hosting this summit. But if one goes back to the original Goldman Sachs formulation, South Africa wasn't included in it. And I believe that Jim O'Neill, the man who thought up the whole idea, says that on economic grounds, they probably don't even merit their membership because they're too small an economy. So do they feel that uh, they can get a lot out of being identified as a brick? Is, is it something that Will, will help them economically or politically? No, definitely. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, if you look at South Africa's economy, it's about $400 billion. The population is 50 million, so it's dwarfed by the other members of BRICS. But it was seen as very much a diplomatic coup when they were uh, admitted to the BRICS club at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. And I think it also, South Africa's representation wasn't seen as South Africa being there on its own merit, but more a reflection of Africa's growing importance. You know, it's the second most populous continent and where, you know, seven of the ten fastest growing economies in the world are now based. So I think, you know, South Africa is seen as a representative of the continent and of that sort of shifting south-south trade. And I think, you know, clearly they were pushing, I think they were pushing for more detail on the development bank as an outcome for the meeting. So they say that, you know, we've got a success on the Durban summit. But that hasn't come. But I think you know, they can still say that we've hosted a summit. We're very much a part of this group. This is the only African member of the G20. So it fits in with you know, their perception of themselves as a critical and economic power on Africa, um, which is obviously garnering greater interest you know, across the globe as, as an investment destination. And watching the summit close up, I mean, is there a sense that there's any particular country that is the de facto leader. I mean, for example, if you go to a NATO summit, it's clear the Americans matter more than anybody else. In the BRICS, does China play that role or is there a rough equality? No, I think clearly, I mean, just looking at the numbers, I mean, China stands out as the you know, economic behemoth. And, um, you know, if a development bank is going to be set up, you know, China's got to be a key player in that. If this uh, foreign reserve board is going to be set up, then China's a key player in that. If you look at the trade, you know, the, the intra-BRICS trade and the BRICS trade with Africa, as an example, you know, China does dominate that. So 
purely from a, an economic perspective, China is the gorilla in the pack, and South Africa is the minute. At the summit, then you hear people singing from the same hymn sheet. I mean, everybody was talking about greater cooperation among BRICS nations, the role BRICS can play. Well, at least from the statements, you get the feeling that everybody has bought into the BRICS concept and the idea that BRICS can play a greater role at a political and a economic level. But what was interesting here is you didn't hear any statements about Syria, for example, or the banking crisis in Cyprus. So it was very much contained towards BRICS, in a sense, and, and sort of the global economy, rather than some of the pressing international issues of the day. Stefan, I mean, getting really to the heart of the issue, I mean, is this really an organisation that matters, or is it just a sort of marketing gimmick that's got a bit out of hand? More the second, but I wouldn't dismiss it altogether. I mean, there are millions of people in the world who work in marketing and make their money out of it. And I think that in that sense, both in its Goldman Sachs incarnation and since, the BRICS have established themselves. And I think that the BRICS summits have helped to do that. What the BRIC leaders have to be is very realistic. The more ambitious they are and the more ambitions run away from them, the more likely uh, it's likely to end in an embarrassment and potential failure. But if they do focus on things that they can do together, then why not? Do they have a shared foreign policy agenda in any way and a shared instinct to oppose Western-led intervention, for example? If you stand far enough back, then yes, in principle, that might be something that they would all vote on. But if you look at any intervention in practice, then their differences emerge. The same is true for economic view. China has been um, represented as projecting the Beijing consensus, a Beijing consensus of economic policy, which contrasts to the Washington consensus advocated for decades by the West. The Beijing consensus, without getting too much into the details, essentially stands for state-led development. It also, on the political side, stands for non-interference in other countries' affairs. And one can see an element of that linking these countries, but one can also see big differences. India is, after all, quite a democratic and pluralistic state in a way that China is not. So in the long run, do you think if we're meeting, uh, say, having a programme like this in five, ten years' time, are we likely still to be discussing the BRICS? Is this an organisation that's only going to increase in importance or is its inherent incoherence, in a way, going to mean that in the end it just sort of disappears? I think a lot depends on whether it has achievements. So far, it's managed to meet five times, as you said um, at the outset. Now, if they do set up a common currency fund and they do set up a bank, and perhaps if they start bringing in other countries, then something might come of this. Of course, the more partners they have, the more narrowly they'll have to focus on their purposes, because by definition, the more partners there are, the more the differences will come out. But if they can agree on a common economic development agenda and combine that with a more coherent approach to what they see as the Western supremacy at the multilateral institutions, then perhaps. But I think they need to be realistic, and sometimes they're not. Okay, Stefan Wagstall here in London. Thank you very much. And thanks also to Andrew England and Durban. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.